All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Honestly Bilal. I'm your host, Bilal Ahmed, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at the University of Toledo. And this is Honestly Bilal, the show for the aspiring ophthalmologist, where I sit down and talk with medical students who are interested in ophthalmology, residents, training in ophthalmology, and current ophthalmologists in the field today. I'm joined by two guests today, Dr. Adina Barakal. She's the director of the Pediatric Retina Service at the Baskin-Palmer Eye Institute, also a professor of clinical ophthalmology at the Baskin-Palmer Eye Institute. My second guest is Dr. Tom Albini. Dr. Albini is the co-director of the Vitretinal Surgery Fellowship and also a professor of clinical ophthalmology at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. Thank you both so much for joining me. This is a huge honor. Uh, your, your friends have been on the show, Dr. Luck and Paul, Dr. Kitchens. Uh, so, you know, just by proxy, I think that's, and we'll have some a fun time. Thanks for having us. Dr. Berkel, let's start with you. You know, I, I like to ask most of my guests their, their origin story, what got them into ophthalmology, what got them into their specific subspecialty. Uh, your your subspecialty is more pediatric retina, uh, and I know a lot of your family members are in, have been in retina. Your father, your sister, uh, your your interestingly your your nephew Luis and I had a recording last weekend, so that'll be a fun episode to put out there. So you know I think there's this uh, sort of tendency we talked about this a little before we got on here, um, but you know people trying to people assume sometimes when you have family in medicine that that's probably why you want to do medicine, and, and there's that external sort of uh, expectation. But you know sometimes we all go about our different ways of finding what we want to do. I know that you have an interesting background, what you majored in college. So tell us your story about how you got here and what, what, what drew you initially to ophthalmology. You know, th thank you for having me, but great questions. And, and, you know, I'm the third child of three. I had an older brother who was a lawyer, so he escaped the medicine, but it was a hard, it was a hard path to tell my father that he wasn't going to be a doctor. Then you have my sister who became an ophthalmologist and a retina specialist. And then there was me. So I, I went from Puerto Rico to Princeton. And at Princeton, I, you know, I looked at majoring in everything else but medicine. I tried, I thought about architecture. Um, I actually liked it. Um, I, I thought about lots of different things, just being a professor in Spanish literature. Um, and then ultimately, I ended up majoring in political science with a minor in Latin American studies. and. Um, and then from there, I worked in Congress one summer thinking that I wanted to be in politics and, and all that stuff. So, you know, I, I fought it. I, I thought that, you know, why should I be a doctor? Everybody in my family is a doctor. We only talk about medicine at the dinner table, you know, one of those horrible, horrible, boring things. Um, so, you know, at some point, um, I graduated from Princeton, um, tried to get a job as a paralegal, mm -hmm. and I used to babysit for this guy across the street from me who has um, a law firm in Puerto Rico. So I, I called him up and I said, would you give me a job as a paralegal? And he said, well, come and interview with me. So I interview, and he goes, you know, so great to see you, ta da da He said, you know, Nina, I love you too much to give you a job. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, who says that thing? I just, just give me a job, I need a job. And he goes, you know, when I look at your dad and I see that your dad is his own boss, he has his own practice, he does something that he makes him feel good every day, um, I think you should think about medicine. So, you know, here I am, I, I go back at it and I said, well, you know, maybe, maybe he's right, maybe I'm just fighting this and this is really what I should do. So I went back, I work in a lab in Boston at the Massanier. I did a year of P53 bench um, research where I did um, looking at P53 between um, skin melanoma and ocular melanoma. And it happened to be that my mentor at the time was Shiz Mukai, who does pediatric retina, go, go figure. So after that, I ended up um, applying to med school. I stayed in Boston, went to Tufts, um, and, um, and at some point, you know, I thought, you know, let me do something else. I'm not going to do retina. My dad does retina. My sister does retina. I mean, really? And um, I really like kids, and I've always loved kids. And my dad thought that I should have been a pediatrician. When I was little, he would say, you should be a pediatrician. You should work with kids. And I was rotating in my PD rotation at Tufts with Craig McEwen, who's now at Baskin Palmer. He's a pediatric ophthalmologist. And he's like, Nina, you really like kids. You should think about pediatric ophthalmology. And I said, 
You know, I really like I really like kiss. I really like retina. I mean, I really like retina, but muscle surgery. I, I can't spend my life doing muscle surgery. You know, and and kissing clinic with the screaming and the look, look here, look, look there. I, you know, I don't have that kind of patience in me. So he said, well, why don't you do pediatric retina? And at the time, there was only Tatsuo Hiroshi in Boston and, and you know, Mike Tracy in Detroit who, who, would be, who really did it, you know, at a, at a big level. So, you know, I said, you know, I'm just going to do retina. So I applied to retina. I ended up at Baskin Palmer. And at Baskin Palmer, the person who had been doing ROP had left. Mm. And um, there was a void. You know, the chief residents were taking care of the service. So they say, Nina, it seems that you like kids. Do you want to stay and do ROP? And I'm like, oh my God, this is like my dream come true. Are you kidding? Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody has a story. I'll tell you, um, I think the more you fight something in life, um, the harder it is, but it always finds you. I believe that, that, you know, things will always work the way they're supposed to. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, you know, I, I think it's sometimes important to have that fight and sometimes to question what do I need to do? What fulfills me? Uh, and then you find your own path along the way. And it's interesting. I talked to uh, Dr. Chan, who, who, who had a similar sort of uh, interesting background with, uh, you know, there was an opening for somebody to take up, uh, you know, pediatric retina. And he said, OK, I guess I'll do it. And then it happened. So, you know, the saying yes to opportunity sometimes can just turn into a career. So it's very interesting. Dr. Dr. Albini, let's get to you. I mean, I know that you had a very interesting uh, story as well. You were uh, you were in college. You were thinking about theoretical physics, and and then you thought about history, getting a PhD in history, and you've always liked science. And I know your father is a surgeon, but also you know research immunologist. So talk about what got you into medicine. What got you into ophthalmology? Yes, it's Ruru too. I think um, much like Nina, I thought I was going to avoid medicine initially. And so when I started college, I was really interested in theoretical physics of all things. And really without much of a concrete plan as to what I was gonna do with that, I'm not sure that I, I really didn't know, but I just knew that I liked the subject material and I liked studying it. And, um, and then, you know, I started realizing that other things were coming easier to me when I was in college. And I got actually did a lot of uh, stuff in the history department wound up history wound up being my major and within history I wound up gravitating to history of medicine and that's a topic that my dad was interested in and ha I had had some exposure from him and I really liked the professor that was there at, at Princeton at the time uh, in that in that history of medicine division so that was how I got got into it but at one point I decided that I wasn't going to go into either you know straight uh, PhD history or um, or physics or other science and that I really wanted to do applied science and do uh, do medicine and I my dad probably had a big big push there I mean I remember his his line was always in medicine you can do good and do well at the same time that was you know he must have told me that many many times so uh, that was that was I think uh, a part of the drive my mom was also just kind of at a practical level she was like oh you should do what your dad did and and I come from not only my father, actually, I trace doctors back uh, many generations back in the family. So we've had a lot of doctors, you know, much like you were saying, there's a lot of talk about medicine at the dinner table. And, and in my family, there was a lot of talk about basic immunology at the dinner table, too, because my dad was a research immunologist. And when I did wind up uh, starting off in medical school, originally, I thought I wanted to do orthopedic surgery. Not, you know, I, I met and heard a a lecture from an orthopedic surgeon who specialized in surgery for ballerinas who had these very unusual set of joint problems in their ankles. This guy lived in New York City and he operated and took care of the, uh, the New York Ballet and he had people flying in from all over the place. And I thought that was very cool. And I, at, in college, I spent a lot of time uh, as a, uh, a very unprofessional musician. <laughs> playing drums in a bunch of local bands and that really took up. So I thought it would be cool if I did hand surgery and that was where I was going. And that was really my career path until I rotated through general surgery and then realized that that wasn't quite my personality type. And just by pure luck, I was doing research in a lab that was an immunology lab again. And that was kind of a path that came forward uh, from, from my dad's interest. And the woman that I was working with 
had decided to drop out of general surgery and go into um, ophthalmology. Hmm. And there was a, a cornea specialist that was doing research there at the, the cornea transplantation research. Between the two of them, all of our lunches were talking about ophthalmology and how much better it was than general surgery. And I, I said, okay, well, I got to at least try it. So I did one rotation and then another rotation. And, uh, you know, by the, I, I had wound up spending, I think, something like a total of three to four months rotating through ophthalmology as a third year medical student, which you could do at Hopkins. It was, it was, uh, it was great. So after that, I, I knew that I was, I was headed in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, and then during residency, you know, I, I also actually, funny, you know, don't think about this much, but there was a period where I, when I rotated through pediatric ophthalmology, I really <laughs> loved it. Uh, I was at, at, at uh, USC right. and at LA County Children's, which is their pediatric ophthalmology, they have a fantastic unit of sub-subspecialists in, in, uh, in uh, pediatric ophthalmology, uh, including retina and neuro-ophthalmology. And, and Mark Borchert was the head of the program there. He's a neuro, pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist. Yeah. He's one of the brightest guys you'll ever meet. Amazing person. And I really really thought about it. I love the kids. I love the way that you, your clinic is totally different in pediatric ophthalmology because you're making faces and noises and trying to engage the kids. And yeah. Something, you know, you can't really get away with with the adults. So I, I uh, that was, um, you know, I, I did think about it for a while, but then um, I really loved so many things about retina, the surgery. Mm. I had a problem. Strabismus, like, uh, uh, horizontal strabismus, I could figure out that was pretty easy. But once you got into vertical deviations, I was just my my head. I just couldn't conceptualize what they were, what was happening with the surgery. Sure. And uh, and and then there was just the call of retina surgery, and I, I you know I just felt it. I knew that I was going in that direction. And the combination for me with the immunology and the retina surgery was uveitis. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was my uh, that that's how I got here. That's a, it's funny because I think those things in retrospect, right? I think it's interesting to think about how different ingredients kind of make the person. And even though you didn't pursue history or you didn't really pursue, uh, you know, theoretical physics or, you know, it's all, it all plays into some part of you or some different skill set or something it taps into. And you, you take those experiences with you, I think, I believe. I don't think any, uh, you know, experience is, is wasted or, or anything like that. So it's just interesting to think about those things in hindsight. So, you know, again, this, this show is meant for the medical student audience. You're both in academics at Baskin Palmer, uh, you know, and some of my other guests, such as Dr. Kitchens or Dr. Luckenpaul, your friends, uh, they're in the private uh, sector of, um, you know, of, of medicine and retina. So talk about how, you know, for, uh, you know, Dr. Barakal, we'll start with you, how academics has, has called to you and why you, what you really enjoy about academics and what really makes a good academic career last well, I, I'll, I'll start by, by a disclaimer that I never thought I was going to be in academic medicine. Um, I always saw myself as going back to Puerto Rico and practicing, you know, in my dad's practice with my sister and just, just having, having a life. Um, you know, and my dad, you know, growing up, my dad had always been part of the university and he had been in private practice. So in, in Puerto Rico, it was easy to do both. You could do, you know, work at the university for a couple of days, even at the VA, and then you would do your private practice. So I, I thought something like that would be great. My dad was always involved with teaching residents and residents were at my house and, and you know, all that stuff. So. You know, when I ended up at Bascom deciding to do pediatric retina and getting hired to do pediatric retina, um, you know, I, I realized that one of the things that I really like are weird things. You know, I'm into wordomas. You know, the, the weirder the thing, the more, most interesting it is to me. Um, so, you know, I think academic medicine is a place that I can actually practice pediatric retina and have a really full pediatric retina practice that I have developed throughout time. It didn't start with, you know, all kids. It started doing everything. You know, I still do everything because, you know, it's fine. It's good to do adult retina. It makes me feel like, oh my God, I, the regmatologist detachment is so easy compared to what I do on a on a daily basis. So that, that combination for me makes me happy. I love teaching. I, I like teaching surgical 
um, retina, and I also um, I also attend cataracts with the residents on Fridays. Yesterday, I spent a day with one of my residents. It keeps me interested. It keeps me. Um, it, it's nice to help somebody grow surgically. I had some really good mentors that allowed me to to be the surgeon I am today, and I, I think to be able to give that back is great. And honestly, being surrounded by young people all the time, you know. It keeps you, keeps you alive and interested. There's always something going on. There's always something interesting. People come to my clinic, listen, I saw this, what do you think? So, you know, at some point in my career, I thought about going to private practice, you know, like everybody does, you know. You're either in academics thinking about going back to, going to private practice or you're in private practice thinking, should I have done academics? <laughs> you know, I, I experienced that, I, I thought about it, and I realized that if I have to go to a private practice and just do epiretinal membranes, macular holes, and regmatoenous detachment and macular degeneration after I've been doing what I've been doing, I think I, I, <laughs> I would not necessarily be happy. So for me, it just keeps me alive, interested. I love seeing Tom. I have Tom next door. I go and talk to Tom. I have residents. You know, it keeps you, keeps you interested. Every day makes me happy to go to work. Sure. Yeah. So Dr. Barclay, I think it's interesting to think about you know how we can sometimes as, as assume we're going to end up somewhere, and then we end up somewhere totally different. Uh, I think I, I'm pretty early in my career right now, but I think you know I, I can tell you from my own experiences in college or in medical school, everybody. We come in with a plan and then the plan gets laughed at and then we just end up doing something totally different. So, you know, as long as I feel like what, what you talk about is important because it's something that you're passionate about now. You've been at Baskin Palmer uh, for years now and it's definitely somewhere you feel comfortable and happy uh, and that's the most important thing. So, Dr. Albini, what about you? What's your perspective about academics versus prior practice and what, what makes you, uh, you know, geared towards academics and what you really like about it? Well, you know, again, going back to dad, I don't know why I keep, you know, Going back to him, he was he was an academician, 100% researcher, um, really gave up his entire surgical practice just to do research. I'm not all the way there. But I saw how much he loved the um, academic environment, um, you know, going to meetings with him. I remember he, he took me to Japan once when I was in junior high school, and we did a, he gave little talks at a number of different universities in Japan. And so we got a whole tour of the country and, and um, you know, those, those kind of experiences and seeing the great meaning that he got out of making contributions to the knowledge base that we had um, about immunology, uh, you know, how much that meant to him. And mentoring, he always had uh, postdocs in his lab and, and you would, in, in basic science immunology, those folks would become, you would see them at home, you'd have parties with them, they'd be over and the, the postdocs sometimes lasted for years. So you got to know those people pretty well, even as the son of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the doc. So that, you know, that, that, that academic environment really drew me. And so I, I, I kind of knew that I was gonna wind up in an, in an academic sphere. On the flip side of that, things that didn't interest me that much, you know, as I, as I started visiting, um, when I was a resident, I went and I, I, I visited a very um, successful um, cataract practice in, um, in Los Angeles. And I was thinking about, well, maybe I won't do any fellowship. Maybe I'll just go into cataract surgery because I, I like cataract surgery. And so I thought about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I didn't like about it is that it was a total it had this kind of mill, you know, it was, I don't want to play that down because I, I have a lot of respect for that. And, but, but to me at the time, it looked like it was just like a factory, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it was incredibly efficient. This guy was doing like 30, 40 cases in a day and he was tur turning around, but, but the way that it all went, you know, every case was exactly the same. He would, he would rush out, take a picture with the patient. I think he'd give the women a rose. I forget what he did. You know, there was a whole, like, there was a whole uh, PR kind of side to it that, um, that to me was less appealing. And then when I started looking at retina practices, sometimes I would go to these interviews at, at private practices and uh, they'd be talking about, you know, the inventory, the, uh, the revenue stream from a parking lot or different types of real estate deals and buying a property, leasing it back to yourself and what the tax benefits of that were. And while that stuff I think is incredibly interesting and I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who build their own business, sure. um, 
th that was less appealing to me than talking about the science, mentoring young physicians that were coming into the field, mm. um, and um, and talking about the, what were actually the, the clinical enterprise. And so that to me was the was the difference. I thought you know the the, the folks at the university were really talking about the things I wanted to talk about. And, um, and of course, you know, there's the politics at universities and the, the, there's, a, there's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy. And I, you know, that's true. That's the downside. But to me, the upside was greater than the, than the downside. And so that's, that's how I wound up going there. There's no doubt, just to be realistic about it, that, you know, it's a huge opportunity cost in terms of, in terms of revenue. You know, I mean, you're going to do in Retina right now, thank God, you're still going to do much better in private practice than you are at academic centers. So it comes at a, at a huge cost. And these were conversations that I had with my spouse about, you know, you know, how we were going to do this, but um, there was never any doubt in my heart that I really wanted to go into academics. Sure. Sure. And that, that ties me into something I want to talk to both of you about was, uh, you know, was, was purpose and, and how you find purpose in your life and purpose in your, you know, and a big part of our, each of our lives, hopefully is, is our career or something we spend so much time doing and pursuing uh, and, you know, unfortunately, last night, uh, Chadwick Boseman, the actor who played, uh, you know, uh, in Black Panther and, and uh, Jackie Robinson, 42, he's, you know, a uh, world famous actor. He passed away tragically from colon cancer. And I saw this quote and I actually thought it'd be a great thing to bring up. And the quote is, you would rather find purpose than a job or career. Purpose crosses disciplines. Purpose is an essential element of you. It is the reason you are on the planet at this particular time in history. Your very existence is wrapped up in the things that you are here to fulfill. Whatever you choose for your career path, remember your struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. So, you know, I, I think about that. And as, as somebody who's applying for residency and, you know, there's the whole stress about, oh, what if this place doesn't reach out to me? What if this place doesn't like me? And then, you know, you can get into that trap of like, well, what is the purpose? What, why did I do this in the first place? Why am I doing this? What's, what, why am I here? What, and, and, you know, I just wanted to get your perspectives. Uh, you know, Dr. Barakal, we'll start with you about how, when you look back at when you were, you know, you were in my shoes, when you were applying for residency, when you were going through this process, how you carried the, you know, your purpose through into the rest of your career, what, what, how your purpose has maybe changed with, with regards to your career uh, and how that's inspired you. Wow. That's such a, <laughs> such a <laughs> super deep question. <laughs> wow. I, I think, um, you know, I think, you know, when I was when I was young and I was thinking of going into politics, um, it's the same reason to go into medicine is to do good for the for the majority of the people. And I think, um, you know, in medicine you do it. I mean, not everybody, but some of us do it because we want somebody's life to be better. So, in my mind, in in ophthalmology and in pediatric retina, I think in pediatric retina there was a big um, a big um, empty um, space of people who really wanted to dedicate their, their careers to, to kids. And if you see retina specialists in general, it's easier to take care of an adult than it is to take care of the kid. You know, it requires that you have to sit with the parents. It requires that my phone is on all the time. I get texts during the weekend. The eye looks like this. What do you think? Um, you know, most of the counseling that I do, I do with the parents. You know, the kids are easy compared to the parents. So. You know, it requires going to the OR, having, you know, exams under anesthesia galore that takes up all your day. Well, I have my colleagues who can do 10 ERMs in like, you know, half of the time that I've been working. So, you know, at some point, you know, you make a decision that you want to do something that, that has some meaning to you. And I think ROP, that's the way I think about ROP. ROP is, you know, every week of my life for the last 20 years that I've been at Baskin Palmer, I've been going to the NICU once, twice, three times. Um, but, you know, I don't have any blind children from, from ROP, which is, you know, it's, it's a testament to the dedication of going there all the time and, and trying to get better at something that's very hard. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think I found a way to, to, feel, to feel that my life had purpose in what I'm doing every day. But, you know, in that, you add being a mother you know, being a wife, you know, being a friend, a daughter. So, you know, there's purpose in all that. It's just, um, you know, that at times it's going to be ROP more important than what's happening at home. And at times it's going to be what's happening at home more important than what's happening at work. So, you know, it's all a balance and, and always having your priorities straight. 
Dr. Albini, I'll, I'll ask you the question, the same one now about purpose. And, and you know, we talk about life-work balance and, and trying to, you know, keep work at work or uh, keep your home life at home life. But at the same time, if you feel like you what you do in your, your, your career is something you're passionate about and something you have to make sacrifices for, what is your takeaway from purpose and, and how it instills uh, some of your philosophy with uh, what you do every day? Yeah, I like that quote that you read uh, tremendously. I, th I think that's that's right. It, 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 that's the way you know that I, I think about these things, and I agree with everything that Nina said. Uh, um, I think that we're very fortunate in medicine to have a career where it's very easy to just to see your purpose. Because mm -hmm. I see my purpose, you know, fifty maybe too many times each day, more times than I would want. But you know, with each patient. Um, you, uh, you, you, you feel like you're having an impact on that patient's life. And I think it's very important because I think it's certainly possible um, to, uh, you know, with burnout and um, just get, getting jaded over the years to lose sight of that. You know, I think you can become very good at what you're doing, but um, not really appreciate um, the purpose of it. And so I, I think that one of the best maladies for burnout or best prophylaxis for burnout is that is to be grateful for the purpose that you have. And this sounds, you know, very kind of high in the sky stuff, but I think it's, it's very true. Um, and um, I, I do, I do love that relationship with fellows. I think you have to, through training, you know, one story while, while Nina was talking and you were talking, one story that, that came back to me was when I was a med student rotating through, uh, one of the rotations, you know, I, I saw a resident who really got, got beat up uh, horribly, and, and it wasn't for anything that bad. But I, you know, I went to Hopkins Med School. They were there was a culture of being pretty, pretty strong, as they put it, or harsh sometimes with each other. So um, this guy got beat up big time, and um, you know, and it was in, inappropriate. Really, it wasn't for anything that he had done wrong, and and. Uh, so I talked to him about it and I said, how do you, how do you keep a smile on your face and go forward when you've been treated like this? I mean, totally mistreated actually. And uh, he said, look, I just know why I'm here. I want to learn how to help patients. And that's what I'm getting out of this. The rest of it is just kind of whatever, you know, I'm not going to let myself get, get bogged down by, by the politics of situations or, the way that somebody makes me feel or the way that, you know, that, that, that uh, somebody treats me. So at the end of the day, I'm learning how to take care of patients. And that's the central theme. I, I always thought that's very important to keep that in your mind because our careers, um, certainly, you know, Nina and I can testify to that. There's so many different components of what's going on uh, with what we're doing uh, on the teaching side, the, you know, heading up a, a, a fellowship program, uh, uh, being involved in many professional societies and and um, and all that comes with that, working with industry, there's so many different levels to what's going on. But I think at the end of the day, to to really keep that purpose, you have to remind yourself that you're there to take care of the patient. Because yeah. so, I mean, even on a, talking about life-work balance, I mean, e even I, I've I've known that people make sacrifices for research where they're so focused on their research initiatives and that's very noble fantastic that might help thousands of patients but then because of that they're neglecting maybe some of their responsibility to mrs jones yeah you know? yeah and and so i think you just have to be aware of the decisions that you that you're making because one thing that that i think uh i'm sure nina will agree you can't do everything mm -hmm. so at some at some point <laughs> You, you have to, as much as you might want to do everything, you have to make a decision. You know, I, I, I'm not going to try to apply for an R01 grant, or I am, but if I do that, I know that I, I'm not going to be able to do, you know, maybe be program director or uh, do as many cases or see as many patients. Um, so I think a lot of us really love what, what we do, mm -hmm. but um, you have to be able to come up with some rational um, equation for yourself as to what things you're willing to give up to do the other things that you love to do. And all, very few people don't want to have a family um, and, and don't want to have a private life. Now, there are some people that may make that decision. They're just like, I don't have time for it. 
And I, I have nothing against that decision. That's, that's a type of balance, yeah. you know, and, 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 and I always feel like the, the term of work-life balance makes it sound like there's some secret balance, you know, some secret amount, but that it really depends on the person where you are and not only the person, but also what part of your life you're at. You may be early on your career, you may be all about the R01 grants, but then you may be more about your, your kids later on in the career. So I think, you know, you, um, you have to make that, that, those decisions of what you want to do and how much you can really, really do well all at the same time. And it's just important to be cognizant of it. And I think if you're not thinking about it and you just kind of move on and, and see what happens and say yes to everything or whatever, then you get that that's when you get burned out because you 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 can't succeed at everything you have to say no to something yeah no it's a good point i think that's the point a lot of us med students need to keep in mind because we're gonna we're at this stage of our careers where you know we should be saying i, I guess one way i see or what i've been told is that you should say yes to most things right now this is a, the growth part of your career you know when you get more established maybe okay then you can make up your mind about things but for now uh, you know, but I think it's important to think about that. And I think you both touched on really important aspects of what makes you feel fulfilled every day. Uh, there's not, every day is not going to have the most easy challenge, easy uh, saying, yes, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm sure there's challenges along the way uh, with your patients and whatnot, with the administrative, pro uh, you know, responsibilities. But, uh, you know, that's interesting to take away from that. So I want to segue into a, a, a topic here that you both are very passionate about. Let's talk about VBS. I mean, VBS is something that you both are actively involved in. Uh, Dr. Luckenpaul has described Dr. Barakal, he's described you as a thought leader when it comes to the themes of the events and the costumes. And, and Dr. Albini, I know that you were one of the founders for, uh, for VBS. So let, you know, why is VBS important to you? Dr. Barakal, I'll start with you. Why is VBS important to you? Um, and then also branching off from there, you know, we're, we're in a year where we're talking a lot about different social um, events and different, uh, you know, different sort of uh, issues in, in the world today from a work standpoint, social standpoint, political standpoint. And gender disparities is one of those, it was one of the things that we're starting to really pay more attention to. And I know that you were participating in uh, Women in Ophthalmology last weekend. So talk about how you know, being a woman in medicine and being part of VBS, how that's been important to you and what you take away from the society. Wow, so, so what can I say about VBS? But like, honestly, the greatest thing that, that has happened in, in retina in the last um, 20 years has been BBS. And, and the greatest thing that has happened to all of us as a- It's a fact, you can look that up. I took it. <laughs> so, so I have to tell you that it, it, I, I love how, how I still remember to this day when I get a phone call from Tom and um, he goes, listen, um, I wanted to ask you something and feel free to say no, you know, it's okay, you know, da, da, da. And I go, okay, go for it. So he says, you know, it's a group of us. We're like five that came up with this crazy idea of having a meeting for young people, surgical, da, da, da. And he said, do you want to be part of it? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, yeah, that's it. And I'm like, yeah, sounds great. I mean, what the hell? So, so honestly, from, from that moment and from the first meeting that we all went together to start thinking about this to where we are today has been an amazing, an, an amazing um, trip. I mean, it's been a journey, really. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, as, um, as a female um, retina specialist within these guys, you know, um, has been great because they, they are open-minded. Um, they are willing to to listen to crazy ideas you know i'm you know outside the box um and when it came to gender i think you know i kept pushing things on them i said let's just think about this or let's do it this way or what about this and never once have i have i heard a no it's always like i don't see why that's important tell me more about it and then we have an argument but it's it's like the perfect thing it's like the group of friends who push each other to be better at everything we do, um, and yet um, intellectual, respecting each other, um, and honestly, we just have fun. And and I, I don't think that anybody who, who has been to VBS can say that all that is not evident in our every meeting that, that we do. And I, I think that's a testament to, to who we are and, and the group of people who really started this. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I, I really love the, you know, this is the silver lining of this year where 
we're in a position where now a lot of things are online is, is as a medical student to attend VBS online was really interesting to watch how going into it, I was like, oh, this must be a very serious educational event, which it is, it is, but it's also so fun. I mean, the way you're, everybody's dressed up in costume and everybody's really invested in the costumes and everybody's really, you know, 110% in, involved. It seems like, you know, there's a passion there that's very, you know, it's, it's tangible, you can see. And, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I have to tell you even more. I, I think that the one thing we don't talk about enough is you know, we work very hard, all of us, right? Every day we see, you know, 60 patients, 50 patients, and you have to make a decision every couple of minutes, right? An important decision on every patient. It might be the right decision, it might be the wrong decision. You're in surgery, you know, there are tough cases. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And we never talk about the emotional toll that our lives really have on a daily basis. I mean, we never do. And we get home at the end of the day and then you have to deal with other things. So I, I think that VBS is a way to do what we do and do it extremely well and extremely serious what we talk about, but at the same time have a moment where you can let it all go and just have fun and be with each other without, without having to be oh, at a cocktail party talking about the latest um, technology. I mean, you're just having fun. And I think that that makes it even so much better. Dr. Albini, I'll ask you now. I mean, you were the, one of the founders of VBS, and and you, and you know, you were at the initial meeting that I heard was in a bar when the idea came about. So, you know, tell us about how. Back how of a napkin in a bar, classic story. No, right? It's like a bad joke. So, and it, yeah. it, it turned out to you know create such a fun initiative and something that you're really passionate about. So, talk about what VBS has meant to you and uh, where you see it going forward, and and the, the initiatives that Dr. Barakal touched on in terms of wellness and gender disparities and why those things are important to address right now. You know, I, I love listening to Nina talk about it. Um, it, it has been an, an amazing uh, journey. I think that's right. And I'll tell you one, one, one interesting thing about it is that um, if, if, for those of you that have ideas that you're very passionate about, but you think this isn't going to go anywhere, sometimes it's right to do it because, <laughs> because this was definitely in that category. This was like a crazy thing that, you know, that really, there were so many retina meetings already. So the fact that we would have a, add another retina meeting, because retina, for, for those that, that are listening that don't know, our particular subspecialty in medicine, I think, has more professional organizations. Um, we've got the American Society of Retina Specialists, Macula Society, Retina Society. Um, there's, there's a couple European societies uh, that many Americans belong to. So there's already multiple groups that, that are involved. Why do we need yet another one? Um, and, and the concept was simple. I mean, at the time, there wasn't a lot of, at the meetings were dominated by medical retina, by the new big pharmaceutical products that were coming in. And there were a bunch of us that said, hey, we would really like to talk about surgery. Now that wasn't the total novel idea. There were, there were other groups that were, that were doing that at the time and, and previously, but we wanted to do it with videos of surgery. That was, that was the original, kernel concept and how it got from that to what you saw online uh, last week is just the product of you know 10, 10 minds making the best out of the situation and going forward I I never would have honestly I I, I I don't think I ever would have winded up on my own accord saying hey we should do a meeting but we should all dress up as our favorite you know superheroes <laughs> like that <laughs> That is not, you know, but it's been proposed, you know, Nina's, as I think Lackenpaul said, you know, Nina's been a, a big uh, proponent in that. And I remember the first time of one of the meetings that we had, Nina said, hey, we should do a toga party. It was at the, the meeting was being hosted at Caesar's Palace. Huh? And I'm kind of a naturally conservative person. I was like, toga party, that sounds like a frat thing. I was like, you know, this is like, these are serious people. We're gonna have them dress code, and I was and and I was literally just like Nina said. I was skeptical, but I was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? It'll be a it'll be a bad evening. I mean, let's try it. Let's see what happens. Nina went. She bought togas for for all like these, you know, like like Steve Charles, the guy who basically invented you know modern vitrectomy. Mean, these these like huge giants in our field that are in their 60s and 70s. They were in togas. At our, at our meeting. And uh, I don't know if Steve Charles particularly was, but you know, Don D'Amico was, for example, other, other sort of very, very, so, 
So it worked. And, and I think it was that party that, that launched where everybody was like, you know what, it's really fun to have a costume party at an academic meeting. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, maybe the viewers can tell me, I don't know if there's any other professional society in medicine that does that. <laughs> so so. It, it worked and there, and there was no downside to it. It was a lot of fun. And um, I was one over on the concept and then, and then we did a few more. And then, uh, and then when the, when COVID hit and we had to rethink our meetings, there, there were a number of very interesting things. And that is that, the, the thing that's been so great on a personal level about VBS uh, to me, and I think to Nina too, is that this particular group of 10 people that now we've been working with each other on this for whatever many years, over 10 years, um, you know, I think we all get along very well and that's important. And we all respect each other and we've never had any, any real sort of um, uh, big fights with, within the group. Um, we all kind of see eye to eye. We have our differences, there's no doubt about it. And sometimes we even yell at each other and whatever, but. But for the most part, it's it's always comes from a place of, of respect and, and admiration and uh, just trying to do the best that we can for the group. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that um, what we were trying to see is how do we keep this group young and innovative? Mm. And we noticed that we a, a lot of us were moving into a position in our careers where we might want to devote time to other things. I mean, you know, I and so. And, and, and also we had to admit that now as, as 50 year olds, you know, are we really still the young man's retina society? Cause how long are we going to try to get away with this till we're like 80, you know? So, so anyway, so, so we, you know, we, we came up with a plan where we were, we were involving more and more people that are, uh, that are younger than us. And, and it's, a, it's been a great way for mentorship. It's been, it's been a great way to help, uh, well, you know, the, the folks that are, that are, that are with us um, uh, have such in, incredible perspective. I mean, you, you've mentioned Jay, Jay Shridhar, you, you know him, uh, Murnali Gupta and, and Yoshi and, and um, uh, it's, uh, Royce Chan from Columbia. I mean, so many of these just great minds. And by virtue of what we've done already over the last decade, now we have some resources that we can share with them and some advice that we can give them and that they can move forward with these things. And the COVID situation was perfect for it because it was a whole new thing. Yep. You know, we, the 10 of us could have done it and we would have done something. I don't know how, how it would have been. My guess is it would not have been as good or as successful as what, what we came up with, mostly because we just turned the reins over to, to, that, to, to the younger group. Hmm. And so they went with it and then they came up with, you know, what you saw. And I, I, I still think it's, it's great at a clinical level on an, on, an, on a academic level and it's fun, even if it's on zoom. Yeah. Uh, certainly I have not as much fun as an in-person meeting, but, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's close to that. So, but that, but that's been, it's been interesting going from a closed group of 10 people that get along really well and have success at doing something to turning it into something that hopefully will stand on its own with different groups of people uh, rotating through it as time goes forward. Uh, yeah, and I think the spirit of what you what you initially from that first meeting, the spirit of the friendship aspect of it, how a group of friends say, hey, let's just do this together and let's take a risk. I think that speaks a lot to why it, I like to talk about and learn about it because as, for me as a medical student and for others who are out there, you know, we're at the stage of we're trying to, you know, we're trying to meet other people on our level of, you know, I'm trying to meet other applicants through this initiative. We're trying to understand who's out there, who probably are, you know, future colleagues and stuff like that. So to seeing these kind of initiatives form and then the, for them to be sustainable and to only grow and for them to have like a purpose where they can actually, you know, be informative and fun and to have a, have that camaraderie in them. It's, it's really exciting to see because, you know, I think we, we look to that and we're like, well, what's down the road for us? What can we be a part of? What can we contribute to? And I think that's exciting. Uh, to see how these initiatives grow and uh, what they can really mean to your careers and, and the friendships you form, which is just so imperative. And uh, I think it's really exciting to see how passionate all of you are when I bring up BBS and, and it's very, it's palpable and it's, uh, it's, it's, it seems like it's just such a good time. So uh, looking forward to seeing how that continues to grow and evolve and uh, what the next, you know, in-person meeting will be, hopefully it'll be a good one and it'll uh, make up for all the time lost. But I think for the meantime, you guys are doing a great job. So, you know, a lot of people are going to ask me if I don't ask you guys about Baskin Palmer. I mean, 
to have two people as faculty who are professors of, of ophthalmology at Baskin Palmer on, a, on my show is number one, something I would have never imagined six months ago. Actually, six months ago, I wouldn't imagine to have a show. So that's one thing, but you know, that's, that's totally different, but you know, um, so let's talk about Baskin Palmer. I mean, you, you stayed there, you, you're happy there, uh, Dr. Barakal. I mean, uh, from, from a, you know, think back to your days of when you trained there as a fellow to, to what you're doing now and teaching fellows and doing things in, in terms of, you know, being the first person at Baskin Palmer to, uh, you know, inject Luxterin into a patient and, and stuff like that. And, you know, what, what's the culture of Baskin Palmer for somebody like me, who's from Kentucky, who just knows it by name, who's never been there. What's it like to be down at Baskin Palmer? What are you, what are you all looking for with your trainees? And, and what's the whole, uh, you know, what's the culture and mission at Baskin Palmer? Well, I, I have to say that, um, you know, I, I think, and, and this sounds like Dorothy, but there's no place like home, there's no place like Bascom. And um, I, I do firmly believe that, you know, I did not, I did residency at Tufts in Boston, so I was exposed to other programs. I had been at Mass Year before that as a researcher. So, you know, I have seen other, other programs. I, get, I came to Bascom as a, as a fellow, and then I stayed. And, you know, I will tell you that there is a culture, there's something about Bascom that's different, you know, intrinsically different. And I, I believe that it is a sense of family mm -hmm. among the people who train there, the residents, the fellows, um, the attendings. Um, you know, one thing that, that helps is that it's the only real program in Miami. You know, it's been here forever and there's no competition. You know, it's not like Boston. You have Leahy, you have BU, you have Mazzani, you have Tufts. So right there, it's, it, it, it separates us, you know, it, and it isolates you in a certain um, geographical way. But um, I, I think that when, you know, I'm in the, in the residency selection committee and it's like 12 of us and, you know, it always surprises me that when we sit there and we all interview different people and we sit in the room and we, we go to pick the people we like, we all like the same persons. Mm. That to me floors me every single time. We have you know, glaucoma people, we have oculoplastics people, we have retina, we have cornea, and we all like the same. And you know, we always look for somebody who's gonna work well with each other, who's nice, you know, you can be you can be competitive, and you're gonna be competitive because you made it to to interview at Bascom. But you know, you're not cutthroat. You're not gonna be trying to get the cases away from your colleague. You know, we're not at that level. We're at the level that we all want to work hard, do what's best for the patient, and do it in a happy collegiate way. Mm. And and I think Bascom really exemplifies that. I I, I think that. Um, you know, if you talk to, you know, and, and the way you see it is at Academy every year, you know, you go to alumni parties, you know, everybody has their alumni party. And the Bascom Palmer party is full. It's so full that sometimes people can't get in because the, the space is so crowded. And you just love going back and seeing the people who train there. There's a camaraderie and a love for each other that, that I haven't seen anywhere else. Yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, it's one of those places where I've obviously from being, like you mentioned, you, you were a trainee as a fellow. Now you're an attending. You've been part of the selection committee. It's, it must be, you know, fun to see it from both sides to where you get to play a role in training the next generation and, and picking people who you watch them grow throughout their, their careers. And we talk about the mentorship that you both touched on earlier as well. Dr. Albini, I know as, as co-director of the Vitreoretinal Surgery Fellowship, uh, you know, I know this is a difficult year for everything that's going on with everybody in terms of training and trying to find the right fit for who's going to be training at their institution. Um, you, as an institute, as the as a director in, a, in your fellowship program this year, is not participating in the match. So, would you like to talk about that and what the difficulties and challenges of this year have been? Yeah, I think uh, that's been a, a difficult decision that Nina and I um, and others had to make. I think that. Um, uh, we, you know, I think we're going to be criticized for our decision by, by many folks. And we recognize that it's a loss for a lot of people who really wanted to at least take a strong look at Baskin Palmer, if not it being their top choice for fellowship training. So we, we, uh, don't want to, to, uh, to treat that lightly. Um, but it was a grave decision really, um, uh, coming from the fact 
that we uh, we thought that the Zoom experience for interviews was going to be somewhat challenging, mm -hmm. and it was going to be somewhat difficult um, uh, for many of us. And we didn't think that we'd get the same uh, ability to see somebody in real life on a uh, on a Zoom interview as you do when you, when you meet somebody. Um, uh, those of us that that interview for fellowships and things, you realize that there's a there's a big difference between the way somebody looks on a CV and on paper and what their personality is like. And it's actually extremely difficult to, I think, make a great judgment about somebody from a 10-minute interview or having 10-minute interviews with multiple people and then talking about it. But I think it would be even harder over Zoom. So that was part of the, 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 the equation. The other part was that this year we happened to have two fantastic uh, candidates that were that were internal and um, uh, for various reasons um, we the faculty felt strongly that these that these folks would be uh, top candidates and that um, that um, uh, it would wind up uh, for a number of reasons um, being a little bit insincere to go through the interview process if if um, we had very good reasons uh, to take these internal candidates. And the combination of those two things is, is what led us to make that difficult decision. So, um, I mean, programs do this from time to time. Um, uh, and uh, we, we hope not to do it for a long time. But um, with all the uncertainty that's inherent in uh, the COVID situation, um, we thought that that was, um, uh, the better way to go. I don't know, Nina, do you have any other? Well, you know, I, I have to say that I, I still remember when I interviewed as, as a fellow, you know, you know, there was a group of us, you know, that goes to the programs. And I remember going to a program that we were all interested in. And we had to pick at the time whether you go to this one or that one because it was the same day, so you have to make a choice. And, you know, we ended up all going to this one program. And when we came there, the word of mouth was that they already knew who they wanted. So here we are, you know, we sacrificed one interview to go to this other interview and these people already know, so why, why are we here? Why are we wasting our time? And, you know, part of me said, no, this hearsay, this is not true, this is what, you know, what fellows, you know, residents are saying about the fellowship. And lo and behold, that program takes the person that everybody knew that was going to get there. So, you know, I'm still jaded about that, you know, and this is how many years later. So I told Tom that, you know, I think that it would just not be fair to, to make people hopeful or, or, you know, thinking that they could do something when in reality, you know, it's not going to happen. So, you know, it was a very hard decision. Um, you know, I, I feel like, Tom, this is not something that we like to do. This is not something that we plan on doing. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, we're in a worldwide pandemic that has changed our lives in many different ways. And I think this is the best decision for this year. And I think I think that one thing about that also is that it's you know we we talked about purpose you know earlier and if 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 I guess I it's naive for me to say this it's probably not my place to say this but you know as a medical student you know as I'm trying to get to the process of becoming an ophthalmologist first and foremost I have an interest in right now that's true but you know I think you have to take one step at a time and it, it's what what's the, what's the, what's the goal of why I'm doing this is it to be in the field or is it to be a certain place and I think that's one thing to you know whoever's out there. Um, who's concerned. I guess I, I, I can't really give any solace to the fellows applicants, but I guess I can give it to the resident applicants out there. So, you know, we have, I guess our responsibility is to take things in context here. So, you know, this year's match is going to be very unpredictable. Uh, I don't think we really know where we're going to end up. And I think it's just going to be very interesting to see, but, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that that purpose, why am I doing this? What's, what's my, you know, what's my, uh, what's my, what's inspiring me is uh, important to keep in mind. So one, one more a quick observation just about this is that, um, you know, uh, uh, retina is a small field and we all, we don't all know each other, but a lot of us know each other. It's a pretty, pretty, you know, uh, pretty tight group of individuals. And um, one of the really great things about the interview process is that it's a way for the applicants to meet all the people that they're that you know whose papers they read and who make the, the decisions and and who present new data and so forth and also it's great for us to meet the people that are coming into our you know coming into our field and so um 
you know, I, 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 it's, it's a big loss for us not to, not to meet the people that, uh, that, that are coming into Retina uh, this year, um, or some of them anyway. Um, but um, again, I, you know, something that we, ha we had to do this year. But it is, in general, the match process, I think, is fantastic. And going back to VBS, like Nina said, there was a group of folks that she was very friendly with when she was applying for fellowship. My year was the same thing, and it happened to be the, the, the small group of us that, that founded VBS that came out of that. But, um, but uh, it's a, it's, I think it's a, it's a great way to get kind of inducted into your, into your subspecialty. Sure. And yeah, so th this can be a, you know, opportunity for people to take up those professional society meetings more regularly and still get engaged with the community. And there's going to be opportunities down the road to really make, make it count. So I think, uh, you know, again, always think positive and we'll see what happens with that and uh, wishing you both best of luck with that process. Let's finish up here with something fun. Uh, Dr. Albini, I know that you're fluent in Croatian, your, your family's Croatian, but you're Croatian by descent. Uh, I want to know, how do I say uveitis in Croatian? Can you teach me how to teach <laughs> I think it's just uveitis. So oh, they don't have, they don't, they, you know, I don't think there's, as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I don't think there's a real Croatian word for uveitis. I've never asked that. It's funny because in Croatia recently, um, we, we, Croatia broke away from Yugoslavia in 1992. And um, as part of that, that movement, um, there was a, a committee or a political movement that tried to clean up the language. Mm -hmm. So they tried to remove some of the terms that are in Croatian that are, that are used. Um, for example, aerodrome, which I think has a French or origin, was the word that we used for, for an um, airport. Uh -huh. and, and so they tried to switch it to Zračna Luka, which is an a, um, uh, air harbor. You know, it's a, there's a word for Luka Harbor in Croatian that's been used for a thousand years, but there was no airport word. So they made, you know, the air harbor was the, was the new word for airport. And so they tried, they had this movement of cleaning up the language. Uh, medical terminology is impossible because it's all really internationally. You'll find that people use English, English terms everywhere. They read American or English uh, textbooks. And so I don't, I don't think there's a, there's a word for it, but I will say this, I have given a few lectures in, in Croatia, uh -huh. and, and even though I speak very rudimentary Croatian, I, you know, all my schooling was in the United States, so, but um, it's very hard to get to, with the technical terms, you know, so I, 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 I prefer to do it, I prefer to do it in English, um, uh, it's, it's, it's not so easy to translate over, but you'll find internationally that most places use, uh, use English terms. Sure. So if you had to make it up, what would it sound like? Yeah, what would it be? <laughs> this is your chance. You create your own word now. <laughs> Inflamatia ochi would be like ocular inflammation. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm not going to repeat that one. I'm going to zip that. Inflamatia is upaljeno uh, sounds more like base Croatian. That means inflamed, like a um, so upaljeno ochi means inflamed eyes there you go <laughs> so i got one i got as long as i got one word out of you i'm like all right cool. <laughs> smart people on the street so that's good dr baracol what about you how about retinopathy prematurity in spanish is that possible retinopatia de la prematuridad oh my gosh. uh no chance i would get that one right <laughs> retinopatia retinopatia Patia. de la prematuridad La prematuridad. Muy bien. Did I do it? Oh, awesome. Yes, my Spanish teacher from high school will be so proud of me now. I made it all throughout this process. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. This was such a fun that opportunity and chance to talk with both of you. I learned so much and, and to really pick your brains about, you know, the wisdom of what you learned through your journey and what you can share with us and the rest of the audience uh, means a lot. And, uh, you know, hopefully meet in person someday in a safer time. Uh, and uh, I want to wish you both the best of luck with everything you're going to be doing this year with residency, fellowship, uh, and, you know, wish you both a uh, safe and happy rest of uh, the day and the week. Thanks for taking your time to do this. All right, appreciate it. What's, what's your ethnicity? My parents are from Pakistan. So can you say retinopathia prematurity? Oh, no. <laughs> I can just tell you where the best place to find biryani would be, probably. <laughs> I can offer. If you, ever, if you ever need that, I'm your guy. That's what I can definitely guarantee you. Sounds more useful. Yes. 
Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful. Very nice meeting you, and thank you for having us. Absolutely. Be sure to leave a review and subscribe to Honestly Bilal on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can find the video format of these interviews on YouTube by searching Honestly Bilal. For all the latest updates on new releases and chats with future guests, follow me on Twitter at Bilal underscore 1712 and on Instagram at Honestly Bilal. I want to thank all the fourth-year medical students applying for residency in ophthalmology this fall who signed up for our virtual interview marathon initiative. We are at full capacity with 60 students from over 50 different medical schools from across the country and can't wait to practice with you and give you the best chance of success. Thanks and chat with you soon.